0: Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. Hi, everybody. So, um, due to some technological problems, the, the recording of the final sermon in the Jonah series somehow got lost to, I don't, I don't know, the ether somewhere. So so, because I felt like it was an important sermon, it was a sermon that uh wrapped up the series, uh, I decided just go ahead and sit down here in my house with uh, my cup of coffee and then just go just go through my thoughts on the last part of Jonah again so this may sound a uh a, a little different than most of the the u r f sermons of the week. It may have a little bit of a different vibe but but whatever, let's go for it here all right so so Jonah four. Is where we will be, and in chapter three of Jonah, we saw Jonah. Uh, he finally went to Nineveh, and he gave a pretty reluctant word to them. He uh, he said, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown." So not the greatest sermon, but God moved on the king in the the city of Nineveh, and we saw them humble themselves and repent. Jonah three ten says, uh, "When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them." the the destruction he had threatened. So God relented. Nineveh is saved. Uh, Let's see what Jonah thinks about this. Jonah four one says, But to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life For it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. And I just love the uh, the King James Version of verses seven, 6 and 7. So I'm going to read them also. It says, And the Lord prepared a gourd. This is verse 6. The Lord prepared a gourd and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. Which I loved. I'm just going to read that say that again. Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. So this is the first mention of Jonah being happy in the whole book. And the thing he's happy about is a gourd. But God prepared a worm, this is verse 7, but God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd so that it withered. So it's just, I just think it's so fun to read the King James sometimes. Verse 8, we'll go back to the NIV. <clears throat> it says, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, <clears throat> excuse me, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I am so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals... And then we'll turn the page, keep reading how the story ends. Oh, nope, that's the end, that's it. Pretty abrupt little ending there. Okay, so, you know, if you if you were to do a Bible school review, you know, and say, is the book of Jonah about a guy getting swallowed by a fish? Most people would be like, yeah, that's, how, that's what the book's about. That's the book, okay? And then, if we did, but how does the book end? You know, how many of us would say, and also many animals? Right, like everybody knows Jonah, that's the one about the fish. How's the story exactly end? It ends with God asking Jonah a question and also many animals. So what an odd ending. Right? Anybody else reading the end, you're like, are you kidding me? There's got to be there's got to be more than that. It's that feeling when you're in a movie theater and the screen goes blank at the end and you think to yourself, no. No. That can't they can't be. And then you see the credits and you're like, oh, come on. So first off, it has this odd ending, Jonah. It's got this very abrupt, feels unresolved. It ends with a question about people and then animals. And secondly, the book ends not with this kind of massive crescendo. And then God did whatever. It ends with this question about the city of Nineveh. But the whole ending part is about a plant. Jonah sets up a shelter. And it's probably some sort of lean-to, sort of a temporary shelter involving sticks, some sort of leaves that had grown up. And oftentimes they would take large like uh, palm frond type things, put them on top of a little lean-to to to provide shade. Apparently the sun scorched up these these leaves that Jonah had put on top of there, so another plant grows up. There's evidence that at the time there was a gourd-like plant, would have been something like a pumpkin, this fast-growing plant in the Middle East that that grew up, and it it, um, produced these large wide leaves. So there is evidence for this fast-growing plant that could grow up the side of a structure. So this wouldn't have been unusual to people reading this story a plant that grows with great speed that provides shade so apparently there's some sort of shelter he built he's unable to shade himself and then this gourd plant grows up and jonah likes the plant it's a good gourd plant he likes the plant the plant brings him great comfort and jonah is happy about the gourd the gourd from the lord in in it's you know if that kind of makes you laugh, that's a good because the storyteller kind of tells it like that. This guy who runs from Tarshish, he wants to die he he's he was this hard hearted guy. he eventually goes and gets happy, and the way he's happy is not from obeying God. it's not from extending grace and mercy to people. It's not from anything else. Jonah finally gets happy and he's happy because of his gourd, so it's pretty absurd. so Jonah likes his plant, then the next day a worm appears. It grows, eats the vine until it withers. And then Jonah is not happy about the gourd from the Lord. Jonah is in a bad mood. He is angry and despondent because the plant that brought him so much happiness has, has withered away. And now he, all he has is this pathetic little stick or stalk or something. And if you think this is completely absurd, this is, that's the point. This is how the story ends. It doesn't end with more talk about large fish or anything. It ends with this awkward, odd, petty exchange about a plant. God asks, is it right for you to be angry about the gourd? Do you seriously, Jonah, have your shorts in a bunch about a gourd? You seriously, this this has thrown you that off a plant. And Jonah says, I am so angry, I wish I were dead. That's sort of the way this story ends. Now, how do we begin to make sense of this? I think to understand what's happening, we have to back up a little bit to verse 5 there. It says, he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. So, the posture that we're given for the whole thing involving the plant is Jonah, after the city repenting, after the king repenting, after all that, the way the story goes is Jonah decides, I'm going to wait and see what happens to the city. Now, why does Jonah have an interest in seeing what happens to the city? Oh, well, here's a couple small details about Nineveh. Okay, in In the year 740, Nineveh's king plundered the northern tribes of Israel, destroyed the the cities there, brutally killed the inhabitants, left only Samaria intact. Then a couple years later, in 735, the king slaughtered the inhabitants of Samaria, when the king of Israel refused to pay tribute. In 700 BC, the new Assyrian king destroyed Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, where he claimed to destroy 46 walled cities and deport 20,000 captives. Here is what the prophet Nahum said about the Assyrians. Nineveh is in Assyria. Nahum talked about Nineveh. He said in Nahum three one, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victim. This is, he's talking about Nineveh. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses, jolting chariots, charging cavalry, (coughs) flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, People stumbling over the corpses. This is what he said about Nineveh. This is such a bloody, mean, nasty, killer kind of city. You have to step over the bodies in that place. Why does Jonah sit and wait to see what will happen to the city? Well, because I mean this city, these people are evil. They're the enemy. Have you seen what these people have done to my country? So why does Jonah sit there? Okay, God. I think he's going, yeah, the fish stuff, I get. The repentance stuff is nice, and you know, but uh, you're going to torch them now, right? Like you're going to crush Nineveh, right? I mean, the king and that stuff, whatever. But you're go- they're going to get what they have coming, correct? Because they're the enemy, and the enemy deserves justice. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to build myself a nice little shady spot. I'm going to wait and watch you bring proper justice to people who deserve it. If anybody deserves it, it's Nineveh. Streets filled with blood, stepping over corpses, right? Nobody has caused more heartache and bloodshed and has slaughtered more innocent people than the Assyrians. So I assume now you're going to do the God thing and you're going to take care of them. And I'm going to watch and I'm going to enjoy it. And at this point, God sends a plant. and Jonah becomes attached to the plant. Jonah finds great comfort and pleasure from the shade of that plant. next day the plant withers, and Jonah has become attached to the plant and is in despair. So what happened to my gourd from the Lord? And then God says to Jonah, you've been concerned about this plant. Verse 10, though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people, who cannot tell their right hand from their left? And also many animals. So God says, you care about your little plant. I care about people, Jonah. You take great joy in the plant flourishing. You have great despair when the plant perishes. I have great despair when people perish. And I have great joy when people flourish. Jonah, you love your plant. And now you know a little of how I feel about Nineveh. You know, by the way, earlier the Hebrew word that described the plant perishing is the same word used to describe the king who doesn't want to perish. Same word. God's saying, Jonah, you want me to bring vengeance on your enemies? You want me to bring revenge? You want me to crush your enemies? God's saying, I'm not like that. But wait, wait, wait. That's how it works. The bad guys get what's coming to them. Nope. You care about your plant, okay? Do you get the little prop thing with the plant? Jonah, you got that? Okay, I care about Nineveh like you care about your plant. Now, this raises a whole set of questions. First, let's start. What kind of book is this? The problem with the Book of Jonah for many people is it it exists in a subconscious realm of a flannograph. The book is a sort of vague, uh, this guy got swallowed by a fish, so you shouldn't flee from the Lord, kids, because God might get you. Right? And so it produces a sort of Christian guilt, a sort of vague flannograph territory where God basically is kind of grumpy. And if you don't do what God says, he'll send a fish. And so it becomes this story that sort of exists, and it's like, yeah, I guess you're right. I, sh- I shouldn't be like Jonah because the the fish might swallow me. So, what kind of book is this? First off, it's not the Torah, right? It's not it's not the first five books of the history. It's not not history. It isn't wisdom literature. The Book of Jonah is included among a book a group of books which are called the prophets. It's a prophetic book, and the prophets. <clears throat> They would come to people and announce truths that were a bit hard for those people to hear and often got the prophet killed. Jonah is a prophetic book, which means it is a sharp, pointed critique meant to provoke people to ask themselves difficult questions about why and in in the ways in which they are living. Remember, if you are an Israelite, Assyria is the enemy. They are a vicious global empire, a military-industrial complex that just, just crushed everybody in their path with bigger weapons Bigger army, more soldiers, death, death, death. And for a good Israelite, God bring him down. And God says, no, the Ninevites, those are 120,000 people that I love. Is this why the book ends not with a, a statement, but with a question? Are you going to continue to hold out for revenge against your enemy? Or are you going to love and bless your enemy? Because that's what God is like. What do you do with your enemy? Do you sit and wait to watch them crash and fail what do you do with your ex what do you do with your business partner who took the money and ran what do you do with your neighbor who's always on you you build a shelter outside the city and wait to see them burn right right i mean they're the enemy i mean this is the whole political strategy in our country on both sides you take your enemy you make a caricature of the, of your enemy you take line you take lines out of context you make your enemies look stupid that's what you do correct that's what we do with our enemies you make a joke of your enemies and you wait for their destruction and god says you love this plant i love your enemies that's what jonah's doing what are you going to do with that but so this raises a question what's the deal with the animals and also many animals well, animals way back, early on, one of the first things that, Genesis, the, that the Genesis story says is that Adam named the animals. Animals are a sort of a, uh, you know, a, a representative of the creative order. This is saying that God wants to redeem everything. Everything. Jonah is confused about the enemy stuff, and God is saying, your enemies are just the start. I want to redeem the whole thing. I want to put the whole thing back together. Jesus speaks to the renewal of all things Paul in 1 Corinthians one twenty-six, of the reconciliation of all things Peter in Acts 3.21 speaks of the restoration of all things the redemption of all things the renewal of all things throughout scripture God doesn't just want to rescue those people God wants the whole thing back so the book of Jonah is a prophetic book and it ends with a question are you going to be like Jonah and sit outside the city and watch and wait for your enemies to burn and be destroyed or are you going to capture something of God's heart Jesus later said love your enemies our world does not work this way our world does not work this way, mercy in this story triumphs over judgment God's mercy wins over God's judgment God is saying I know what the the Ninevites deserve but in my world people don't get what they deserve, they get my grace in mercy, grace, mercy triumphs over judgment. Jonah is living in judgment; he's waiting with a scorecard, and there's a proper, you know, proper place for the legal system, justice, etc. But this is about Jonah's heart. You he love this plant; you are heartbroken when the plant perishes. Well, I am the kind of God who is heartbroken when people do not repent, when they do not experience grace and mercy, when people do not step into my love. And grace and mercy. I care about Nineveh. Jonah, who do you care about? You seem to only care about a plant. So it sort of lingers there as a question, what's your heart like? And no wonder this book is among the prophets. This would, this would have been a hard word, and to, the, to this day it's a hard word. How far does mercy go? Mercy goes to the ends of creation. Mercy is big and wide and deep. Can you imagine for Jonah, the Assyrians? Are you kidding me? The Assyrians. When the prophet Isaiah speaks, he says that Assyria and Egypt will worship together with Israel. The the biblical vision for the world is that God's grace and mercy somehow triumph over all the things within us that say they deserve to burn. In Matthew chapter 12, um, a group of religious leaders wanted Jesus to do a sign. They essentially say, show us. Prove to us that you're the Messiah. Do some sort of trick. Do something that will impress us so that we can have some some evidence, right? Jesus is like, if you're looking for a trick, I'm not into that, and it would um, it would reveal something about me and you that I don't want. So, so Matthew 12, verse 39, Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. You all just want party tricks. Then Jesus says, but none will be given. None will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. He essentially says, Nineveh, they will get it. They get it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. So the sign of Jonah is three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Now what's that mean? jesus says you you want to know how things work he said if you understand the sign of jonah three days in the belly of a fish then you understand what i'm doing now i think we see some of what this means in the created order so it is october right the leaves are starting to change and we think oh that's so precious the way the leaves change love the fall colors but the fall colors mean things are dying right oh look things are dying beautiful let's drive around Then the leaves fall off the trees and the trees are naked And it gets darker and it stays darker longer And it starts to get darker earlier But then snow, first snowfall Wonderful, right? And then there's Christmas Which Christmas has kind of a Hey, alright, carols, you know, Elvis singing Presents, Rudolph, beautiful That sort of thing January, still kind of riding, new year Fresh slate, working out, etc And then February, end of January Winter starts to lose some of its luster And it starts to become A little bit like right so it's like death summer fall winter death spring five seasons what happens in the created order as things die they reach sort of a peak of deadness february-ish dead and then we get april may the sun starts to shine a little earlier in the morning it starts to stay light a little later All of a sudden you're out in the yard kicking a ball around And you realize it's like 7.30 and you can still see And there's sort of this joyous feeling That first day when you're driving along And you crack the window a little bit, right? That feeling, there's a sort of It just starts to gradually grip you And you start to be nicer to people Death in the created order gives way to life And now you start to see a tree over here Start to bud You Start to see a bird you haven't seen for a while, right? Welcome back from Florida, bird You welcome the birds and your grandparents back from Florida. And it's this gradual sort of beautiful thing that you feel. The rhythm of the seasons. Death gives way to life. And the next fall, death. The next spring, life. So there's this cycle. When Jesus is then looking for an image to describe what he's doing, what image does he choose? Buried in a fish. Spit back out. Buried in the earth rise again death gives way to life so i think the question for us is what in my life needs to die so that i can live what needs to die so that i can live death resurrection so this is a question what needs to die so that you can really live what needs to be swallowed up what needs to be drowned what needs to be buried maybe there's somebody that you need to forgive and you've been holding on to revenge you have made a shelter and you are waiting to watch them destroyed, and maybe you need to die to the desire for revenge so that you can really live and love that enemy. We saw the book begins with Jonah. Excuse me, wants to flee from God, so he runs away from God only to discover that the place he runs away to, God is there also. We have these places we want to run from. Abuse, wounds, wrongs suffering we have this darkness the thing that we keep pushed down so we don't have to deal with them but jonah shows us that you can go into your own darkness and god will be there you can journey into the heart of those fears and god will be there that addiction that no one knows about you can be honest about it you can admit it's become unmanageable and god will be there too so maybe maybe Today we put to death the pride or fear that keeps us fleeing instead of living. Is there something that you've been fleeing? Staying a step ahead of? Pushing it back, just keep going so you don't have to deal with it. Maybe you stop and you face it, and you step into it, and you find out that God's grace and mercy is present even there. Maybe it's time to speak the secrets so they no longer have power over you. Is there a problem in a relationship and you keep pretending like everything's fine? Maybe you need to speak. You need to get help because we will find out that God will be even in the admission that things aren't perfect. God will be there too. Jonah thinks he can flee from God. One of the first things we learned in the book of Jonah is you can try to flee from God and God will be there and you can run as fast as you can. God will be there. So we ask God to meet us in the places where we least expect to find God. We saw at the beginning of Jonah, these uh, these Gentile sailors, who are supposed to be the ones who don't want anything to do with God. We see, them, we see them worship, and they offer vows and sacrifices and ask questions, and the prophet of God, who is supposed to be the one bringing the Gentile sailors to God, stays asleep on the boat and wants to kill himself, and they protect his life. We like to put people into nice, neat categories. These people are like this. These people are like this. And maybe your categories aren't working anymore. Maybe not. they aren't working politically anymore. Left, right, liberal, conservative. All the sort of standard, stale categories. Maybe we just say, God, I'm burying this us, us versus them mindset. Help me think about the world how you think about the world. Not through the filter of my cultural categories. And so we just bring that and we say here, I want to I put this to death so that I can live in a new sort of way. Have you been so preoccupied and focused on your own comfort, on your own safety, on your own pleasure? Have you been so fixated on shade and relief? And is God saying to you in the midst of your small, shrunken world, is God saying, hey, hundreds of thousands of people over here, they need my love, they need salvation. They need purpose, they need community, right they need they need water, they need to learn how to read, they need hope, they need a friend, they need medicine, they need tutoring, they need discipled. Hey, 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 I know all you can think about is your plant and your comfort and your safety and your luxury, but there's a big, wide world, and there's lots and lots of people, and I would like you to help me help them. Have you been so caught up in your own stuff that you've lost the sense of mission and calling? And a sense that the world is desperately in trouble and we get to try and help do something about it. Maybe today you say, God, I've been so self-centered. Please give me a mission. Give me something bigger than myself that I can be a part of. What needs to be swallowed up? What needs to be drowned? What needs to be buried so that I might live? That I might be raised with Christ to new life. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this old story with all these twists and turns and surprises and edges and for this prophetic question to Jonah, which we read as a question to us all the times we sit in our own little shade waiting for enemies to suffer. We ask that your love, your mercy would triumph over justice in our hearts. For many of us, we see ourselves in Jonah. We are so easily, easily preoccupied with our own comforts. We are so easily deceived into thinking we can flee from you. And we continue to hold out for our sense of who deserves your grace and mercy. God, we let this question about Nineveh linger. This book that lingers sort of unresolved, what about Nineveh? We start to care so much about our own little gourd while the world around us shrivels up. So we ask that you would give us a rebirth in our community of mission calling passion to do something about this world that we find ourselves in. We ask for all the power and humility and strength and intelligence to go about that sort of work. We thank you that the resurrected Jesus invites us to repent, to confess, to be buried so that we might rise. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.